Our scripture this morning uh, is taken from the book of Galatians. This will be our last week uh, looking at the book of Galatians. And I'm going to be reading uh, from verses 13, chapter 5, verses 13 through uh, verse 25. Paul writes this to the Galatians. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. But through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you're led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God." But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. This is God's Word. Let's pray. Father, we pray for your presence here this morning. We're thankful that when the scriptures say that you inhabit the praises of your people, we can trust that when we sing to you, when we lift your name up, when we reflect on you and your word, that you show up in great ways. So we pray that your spirit would show up in our midst and help us to see what the meaning of these words are, but not just their meaning, but the way they affect the way we live our lives as well. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. You know, when you really think about it, uh, our culture has really changed uh, remarkably over the past, I guess, even 20 years. You could go back 50 years, but really the past 20 years. And I know I I sound really old when I say things like this, and I say them often, but when I sit and think about all that we can do with modern technology that we really couldn't even do just 20 years ago, it really is remarkable. When you think about how you can, you can FaceTime or, or Skype or Google Chat or whatever it is with someone on the other side of the world very easily, it's just absolutely remarkable. We have phones in which we can talk to anybody about anything at any time and we can often hear their, their, the intonations of their voice or, or if we're video chatting with them, we can see their facial expressions no matter where they are. And when you think about that, when you think about our cultural moment and how different that is from, from culture all up until this point, it really is remarkable. Because the reality is for so long the only way people had the ability to communicate with one another if they weren't sharing the same space or sharing the same room was through writing of letters. 
Business deals were done through the writing of letters. Kids would actually write letters to their parents when they were away at college. Spouses would wait to receive word about letters from their husbands or wives who were off in some foreign land fighting, uh, fighting in some sort of war. And the, 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 the form of letters was really one of the only ways that people could communicate with one another. Just this past week, I, I picked up a volume of the collected letters of C.S. Lewis, and uh, I got to read some of the, the letters that he wrote to his friends all over the world, and I was reminded about how precious letters were in that culture, about how people used great thought and deliberate care when they wrote those letters, and, and how people would wait with all sorts of anticipation and excitement to receive these letters and how much joy came from when they received them and read them from friends and from loved ones that are far off. Well, over the past couple weeks, we've been looking at a letter. The entire second half of the New Testament is full of these letters, and we've been looking at a letter that Paul wrote to his friends and church family in the region of Galatia. These were churches that that he had founded and then had to leave on other journeys. And so he wrote letters back to them, often saying wonderful, uh, affectionate comments. But if you read the letter of Galatians, you know that there's not a whole lot of affection there. Instead, it's a very strong-worded and forceful letter. It's It's a corrective letter. Because Paul really believed that the Galatian church had actually walked away from the most essential thing about their faith. They had walked away from the very message of the gospel. So Paul writes them this letter in order to correct them. He wants them to correct the way that that they had been thinking about God. He wanted to correct their theology, the things that, that they were believing about God. But he also wanted them to see about how the things that they believed, their theology, radically affected the way they lived their lives. It affected their practical, everyday lives and how they interacted with one another. The things that you and I believe about theology, the things that we believe about the gospel, actually affect everything that we do in our lives. The theological thrust of, of Paul's letter is, is centers around this idea of justification. If you were with us just two weeks ago, we talked about the theological thrust of Paul's letter. And he tells them that we are, we are made right before God, not through our achievement or through our human efforts or trying harder to merit God's favor. Instead, we recognize that our sin And our rebellion makes it impossible for us to earn our way back to God. Instead, we are made right before God through faith in Jesus Christ and his work and his sacrifice on our behalf. And if you were with us last week, you saw that, that Paul began to connect that to our very identity as people. He argued that once we were slaves to sin, we stood before God condemned, awaiting the punishment that we deserved for our sin. But then, through faith in Him, we can be made right before God. 
And we no longer are identified before him as slaves. Instead, we become sons and daughters of the king. We're adopted into God's family. And we're treated to all the blessings that come from one who lived a perfectly obedient life before God. And we saw last week that the challenge for us becomes no longer living as slaves but instead living in light of our new identity as sons and daughters of the King. And over the past couple years, I've had the opportunity to, to travel to Acapulco, Mexico uh, for several mission trips. A couple times I, I went just on my own to serve. Other times I, I took mission teams with me. And every time that I went, I had the opportunity to uh, serve and volunteer at an orphanage in Acapulco. This orphanage was designed for kids that uh, had been abused or kids that were orphaned or kids that had lived on the streets of Acapulco for a certain period of their life. And I can remember distinctly the story of of one kid in that orphanage. When we arrived, the, the people that worked on that orphanage pointed out this kid in particular and said a large portion of his life, he actually, his parents had tied him up by a leash in the backyard of their home. And he had to live as if he was just a family pet, no better than a dog, until he came into this orphanage. Heartbreaking stories of these kids who had lived as orphans and been brought into this orphanage to receive care and love. A pastor friend of mine who, who would often go on these trips along with me uh, used to sit down with the kids and he used a specific exercise in order to help to illustrate the gospel of Jesus Christ to these kids who so desperately needed it. He would take those stickers, you've all seen these stickers before, they're the stickers that say, hello, my name is, and then you write your name and of course everybody knows who you are whenever you go into a social setting. Well, what he would do is he would give each one of these kids several stickers. And he would ask them to think for a little bit, for a little bit. And he would ask them to start writing things on those stickers that they believed about themselves. Things that they believed about their identity or things that people said about them throughout their life. And routinely they would write things like rejected or orphaned or dirty, or damaged. And they would put those labels on their body. And at the end of this exercise, what my friend would do is he would say, all right, now what I want you to do is to take all of those labels off and instead write a new label. And on that new label, write son or daughter of the king. And replace each and every one of those labels that said dirty or rejected or orphaned with words like clean and accepted and cherished and loved. In some ways, this is Paul's argument in the book of Galatians. Because he says, in Christ we're no longer slaves, we're no longer orphaned. Instead, we are sons and daughters of the King. And what he argues to the church of Galatians is now you need to live in light of your new identity. You need to live in light of the gospel. And what that means, as one author put it, is that in terms of our identity, we no longer take our cue from what others think about us or even what we think about ourselves because the critical matter, 
comes with how God views us. You see, the Galatians were living not in light of how God viewed them as sons and daughters, but they were still living in light of how others viewed them. They were still living like slaves. And it's why Paul says to them in this passage in verse 13, he reminds them that you were called to freedom. But instead of living in light of your freedom, you're going back to living like slaves. You know, the idea of freedom, even as, as I just throw that term or that concept out to you, the idea of, fr- of freedom can be a very controversial idea. Almost everybody on the planet believes that freedom is a good thing. They believe that, that it's a good ideal that we should live by. Even dictators believe that. Dictators and liberationists all believe that freedom is good. But how we define that freedom becomes very different. Everybody paints the picture of freedom differently. So this morning, briefly, what I'd like to do is just look quickly at what Paul says our freedom in Christ looks like. He paints a picture for us of what freedom really is. And in doing so, he tells us what it is. He tells us what it isn't. And he also, in the process, gives us a very crucial element about what it means to live a life in relationship with Jesus Christ. The first picture he paints for us really is what freedom is. And he's been painting this picture all throughout the book of Galatians because he reminds us all throughout the book that we actually, before we met Christ, we stood before God as condemned. The book of Galatians talks a lot about the law. And when it talks about the law, it talks about God's demands or his design for our lives. We often think about all the rules that are in the scriptures, not just the Ten Commandments, but all the rules that God gives us about how we ought to live our lives. And the scriptures promise us that if we perfectly obey that law, if we perfectly obey all those commands, then we are right before God. But if we disobey them, even just one, we are guilty of breaking all of those laws. And because of that, we stand before God as individuals who are condemned. But the scriptures tell us, and the book of Galatians reminds us, that God didn't leave us in that state of condemnation. Instead, he sent Christ to rescue us. To be the one who was condemned in our place, so that we who are guilty can be declared innocent. So that you and I who are sinful can be declared before God as righteous. So that you can, you and I can walk out of that great cosmic courtroom and say that we are free. Our sins no longer define us. Our inadequacies no longer define us. Our mistakes can no longer define us. And they never will throughout all of eternity. Because nothing at all can separate us from God's love. No sin can take away what we have in Jesus Christ. We are in His hand and nothing can ever take us from His grasp. But not only are we free from punishment... But we receive all the blessings as if we were one who was perfectly obedient. We are sons and daughters of the king. Yet even though we are given the label of sons and daughters, we still would rather keep the label of slave on us. 
And we continue to live as if our lives are up to us. And God's favor in our lives is up to us. And it's why Paul says we have to constantly remind ourselves of the gospel all the time. As as one author put it, the gospel is a rescue. It is an emancipation from bondage. But our rescue has nothing to do with what we do. Instead, it is all about what Christ has done on our behalf. Because of what he has done, we are free to approach God without any sort of fear. We are free from the burden of our conscience. We are free from having to prove ourselves to God and to other people. I can remember about a year or two back when we first moved into this area, we uh, had a friend over to our house. And this friend had heard about what we were doing, so they were, they were curious. They were curious about what it meant to be a pastor and what it meant to start a church. But really, they were curious uh, about our perspective on the faith. So when we got together, we exchanged pleasantries, but it was clear that this person wanted to, to talk about our faith. They wanted to hear our perspective on the faith. And we, we shared with her that what we believed is in Christ, we no longer have to be defined by our sins and by our mistakes. We shared with her that if it were up to us, we could never make it to heaven on our own. And that is why Christ stepped in to provide the way. And she looked at us kind of puzzled. And she said, well, that just seems too good to be true. That seems to be news that's just too good to really grasp. It seems to be good news that's too good to, to, to really be true or to really believe. And then she asked a great question, a question that I often get a lot when I share the gospel with people. People often say, well, if that is true, if the news is really that good, then what is the motivation for me to live a good life? Where becomes the motivation to love others and to care for people? Where is the motivation for me to to do good deeds? It's a good question. Because in her mind, if you removed the, the ability to earn our way to God, then you remove all motivation to live a good and moral life. If we really are covered by grace, then what we do doesn't really matter, right? That was her question. And the answer in some ways is both yes and no. And that's what Paul is trying to communicate to the Galatians because he tells us what our freedom is, but then he goes on to tell us what our freedom is not. He says in verse 13, For you were called to freedom, brothers, only do not let your, let your, use your freedom as an opportunity for flesh, but through love serve one another. See, the gospel does tell us that in the cosmic courtroom of God, believers in Jesus are declared justified and made right before God. We are free and no one or no sin can take that away. But that freedom doesn't mean that we are now free to sin. Our freedom ought not to give us the impetus to go out and sin without any fear of consequence. Instead, it should give us the impetus to serve others boldly with our lives. 
You see, the only motivation that my friend in that, congreg- in that, in that conversation, the only, f- the only motivation for a good life that she could understand was to think of it in the framework of appeasing guilt. But what the Christian understands is that our guilt has been taken away. And instead, we are given a different and better motivation for living a good life. And that is the motivation of gratitude. It's gratitude for what God has done. It's gratitude that should be so great that it should propel us into acts of mercy and service towards those that God puts in our path. It means wanting to please our Father. It means not wanting to to cause any harm to the precious relationship that we have with Him. It means wanting to demonstrate His mercy and service that He gave to us, but to demonstrate it to others that He puts on our path by giving our lives away in service. Martin Luther famously said this in his book that talks all about our freedom in Christ. He says this, He says, a Christian is the most free Lord of all and subject to no one. But then he says, a Christian man is the most dutiful servant of all, subject to everyone. See, when he wrote this, he was echoing the words of Paul himself when he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. You see, both Martin Luther and Paul saw our freedom not as a license to sin, but as an opportunity to truly love and to serve others. And you see, when we see this, when we experience this freedom, all those laws, all those rules are no longer there to condemn us. Instead, they are there to show us what a life of gratitude looks like. The law no longer is our our slave master. Instead, it is the means by which God shows us how to live a life that is transformed by the gospel. How to express our love and gratitude to God. How to express our love to other people that God puts in our path. You see, the motivation of guilt is a terrible motivator in the long run. But the motivation of gratitude is a motivation that truly sustains us throughout life. And what it does is when we experience that freedom, it frees us up to actually love others better. It frees us up to love others freely. We can, we know, see, we no longer need to to work for the approval of others because we have it in Christ. Instead, we can now just love them for them. Someone once wrote this. He said, A clear conscience means that we are not under the burden of self-condemnation and a sense of worthlessness that drives us to suck approval from others and demand their applause for our success. Instead, we become free to love others with daring selflessness, to love them for what they need and not what we need. You see, Paul, by by telling us what freedom is and then telling us what freedom isn't, he gives us a glimpse of what it means to live in relationship 
with Jesus Christ, he describes for us a very important struggle. And that is the struggle between what Paul calls the flesh and the struggle between what he calls the spirit. I have to be honest with you, for, uh, for many years I put a personal moratorium on any illustrations in sermons from the Lord of the Rings. For whatever reason, a pastor, for a couple of years when those movies came out, a pastor could not preach a sermon without giving an illustration from the Lord of the Rings. So at that moment, I swore it off. I said, no matter how good the illustration is, I refuse to, I refuse to, use, it, but to use it. But I think the moratorium is up because I have to give you an illustration from the Lord of the Rings. If you've ever read the books, these, the scenes are not uh, in the movies, but if you've ever read the books, uh, there's a powerful chapter at the very end of the very last book called The Shire Reckoning. Like I said, it's, it's not in the movies, but it's a scene in which all the great battles have, have been completed. All the battles have been won and the victory has been obtained and the true king is on the throne and the people are free and you feel like... Wow, the story is now over. We can wrap it up in a nice and tidy bow. But then the main characters return back to their home, to the place that is is most precious to them after the great battle, only to find that their home is still in a state of battle. The forces of evil are still fighting the forces of good, so that even though the victory is won, the main characters realize they still need to fight another battle. Friends, if you are in Christ, you have gained freedom. And your victory is in Jesus Christ. But that doesn't mean that there still are not battles that you need to fight. And what our passage does is it tells us about a battle that all of us who are in Christ need to fight every single day. And that is the battle between the flesh and the spirit. You see, Paul talks about a radical change. He says, when we're in Christ, we're a new creation. Before we were in darkness, and now we are in light. Before we are slaves, now we are sons. Before we lived our lives in the flesh, now we live our lives in the spirit. And he talks about the flesh as the old man, the old person, and the spirit as the new man inside of us, this new person. He says, but if I say walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. And then of course we read in our passage that Paul goes on and gives us a laundry list of what the fruit of the old man or the fruit of the flesh looks like. And what he does is he contrasts them with the fruit of the Spirit, of beautiful concepts like love and joy and peace and patience. And what he says about the life of faith is it's a life in which we daily crucify the old man. We daily battle with that flesh that is inside of us. It's a very active war that we wage in our hearts every single day. And all of us know that this battle is a real battle. We all know what it's like to say, I'm not going to do that thing. I'm not going to engage in that habit anymore. And we find ourselves just an hour later doing the very same thing we promised we wouldn't do. 
Why is that? Because the battle is difficult. Because the battle rages in our hearts and our lives every day. But the good news is we know that it is a battle where the victory has already been won in Jesus Christ. And we don't do battle every day between the flesh and the spirit. We don't do battle as if the victory is up to us. But we do battle in light of the fact that the victory is already won. And we have our freedom in Jesus Christ. Maybe you're here this morning and and you've never experienced the the freedom that Paul describes in this passage or the freedom that we've talked about this morning. Your entire life has been driven by guilt. It's been driven by an attempt to assuage a guilty conscience that you feel before God. It's an attempt to prove yourself by living for the approval of others. If that's you, know that God offers you freedom from that lifestyle. He offers you freedom from that guilt, but that freedom will only come in a relationship with Jesus Christ. Maybe you're here this morning and you've tasted of that freedom. Know that that freedom doesn't give you a life, uh, give you a license to live a life for yourself, but instead it gives you the motivation to truly love and to serve others that God puts in your path. And in so doing, you will walk by the Spirit.